Has there ever been a time when you nearly missed out on something that you absolutely needed to be a part of? We, we're, we're talking about weddings uh, in our text this week. And I thought about the story of a wedding that uh, my buddy David told me about a time when he and his brother Jonathan were going to play a wedding do the live music for the ceremony with their mom and dad at a wedding in London. They go to church here at Southridge in Niagara. And uh, their mom and dad had gone to London the night before, so they were already there ready to go. And David and Jonathan had decided that they were going to go Saturday morning up to London in dad's new old used diesel truck. And so they got up early in the morning. They said first thing they did, they drove to the gas station to load up the truck with diesel fuel parked in front of the diesel tank and just sort of assumed that parking in front of the diesel tank was going to cue the gas station attendant that it was diesel fuel that they needed. And apparently uh, the attendant didn't get the memo because Dave said he didn't even notice, but the attendant had grabbed the gasoline hose and he had dragged it all the way across the car, jammed it in the gas tank. And before David knew what had happened, he had, the guy had filled up their diesel truck with gasoline. David said 45 minutes later of siphoning gas out of their diesel truck and refilling it with diesel fuel, he said he kind of realized now they were going to be cutting it close to the wedding in London. They probably lost most of their rehearsal time, but they jumped in the truck and they raced uh, towards London. They made it as far as the 401, David said, when the truck began to shudder and shimmy and shake and all of a sudden it began to sputter and die. He said they kind of coasted down this hill that they were on off to the side of the road where they just sort of parked the truck and realized that that dad's new old diesel truck had two gas tanks and not just one. And the one the truck had been running on was now bone dry, which if you have never driven a diesel as I have not, David explained to me, meant that you couldn't really start the truck again until you'd primed the lines and done all sorts of stuff that they did not have time to do on the side of the road. So David and Jonathan jump out of the truck in their tuxedos, with their musical instruments. Dave plays the cello, John plays the violin, and they hike to the side of the 401 in their tuxedo, carrying their instruments in the pouring rain, and they start hitchhiking down the 401. This 18-year-old kid zooms over in this like souped-up Acura Integra, and they jump in. They tell them where they're headed, and they say, listen, here's the deal. The prelude starts in 15 minutes and we're 30 minutes from the church. We need to get there fast. David said, this guy stepped on the gas and in the pouring rain ripped about 180 kilometers an hour up the 401, zoomed through town, careened into the back of the church. The guys jumped out, ran inside, ripped open their cases, grabbed their instruments and settled on the stage soaking wet just as the back doors of the church opened up and the processional began, Dave said his mom and dad were shooting daggers at them through their eyes. But could you have imagined if they hadn't gotten to the church on time? Could you imagine what it would have been like for them to have missed out entirely on this whole thing that they were supposed to be a part of that is precisely the imagination that Jesus wants to inspire in us as he turns to this story that he's going to tell in Matthew chapter 25. 
starting in verse 1. We've been in this series that we've been called uh, Beginning with the End in Mind. In Matt, looking at Matthew chapter 24 and 25, when Jesus is preaching his final sermon before he's arrested and uh, crucified and dies on the cross for the sin of the world. And um, in this last sermon that Jesus preached, kind of like his last lecture, and what Jesus wants to talk about in his last lecture is what it means to live your life in the consideration that the end is coming. Not just the end of your life and my life, but the end of human history when Jesus returns and ushers in the eternal kingdom of God like we talked about in the first week of the series. What does it mean to live life beginning with the end in mind? And so two weeks ago, we talked about what it looks like to live before the end. The shape of our lives as we live them in a world that's filled with pain and suffering. And we talked about Jesus' call for us to keep calm in hope and to stand firm in faith and to persist in love. And then last week we talked about what it looks like to live towards the end. To live in this constant state of spiritual watchfulness, wakefulness, readiness, being faithful to be doing the things that God has called us to do. And the question that Jesus answers now in the last three weeks of this series is, what does that life of readiness look like? And he begins to describe it in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. He describes it metaphorically by telling a story that starts like this. It says, at that time, when Jesus returns and the kingdom of God comes for all of eternity, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, before you get all weirded out by the story of 10 virgins meeting up with this dude, uh, Jesus is painting a picture of a first century Palestinian wedding. That's what Jesus is talking about. We don't know a ton about Palestinian weddings, except that we know that the main ceremonies happened at the bride's parents' house, where the groom would show up with his groomsmen, a bunch of his friends, and they would go to the bride's parents' house, and they would engage in the final financial negotiations of the arranged marriage, and then once all of the I's had been dotted and the T's been crossed, they would engage in the wedding ceremony itself and the two would be joined together in marriage. And that whole process would typically take long enough that it was dark by the time they were finished. And after the wedding ceremony, they would do what we typically do, which is to leave the place where the ceremony happened and travel to the place where the reception is going to happen. In their case, it was either the bridegroom's parents or a rich relative or maybe even the bridegroom's own house where they were going to hold the wedding feast. And they would travel from one house to the next in this nighttime procession that was led by what were called virgins, that were led by unmarried bridesmaids who each were equipped with a torch because it was nighttime, there were no streetlights, and they would dance and sing leading the bride and groom in this beautiful procession through the village, gathering all the wedding attendants who weren't at the house, gathering them all along the way, and they would go to the bridegroom's parents' house, and there they would hold a wedding feast that would last for days. And basically, the whole village was invited. 
And Jesus says, when you think about what it means for me to return, like the old ancient creed says, return to judge the living and the dead. Jesus says, that's what it's going to be like. It's going to be like a wedding reception. In fact, this metaphor of God coming to meet up with his people and to marry them is, is, a, is a metaphor that goes deep into the Jewish scriptures. In fact, God describes himself this way in the prophet Hosea chapter 2. He says this, in that day declares the Lord God, you will call me my husband and I will betroth you to myself forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. God says, the day is coming when I am going to return to my people and I am gonna gather you in and it's gonna be like we're getting married finally and I'm gonna lavish on you the love and compassion, the righteous, faithful love of a husband for a bride. I am gonna love you and you are going to love me back and we are going to celebrate our love for each other into all eternity. And in Matthew chapter 9, several chapters earlier in this book, Jesus says to everyone around, that's what's happening in me. In Matthew 9, it says this, then John's disciples came and asked Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? Jesus said, don't you see what's happening? I'm the bridegroom. I am God who has come in human form to, to get engaged, to, to express the love of God for you and to gather you all together in your love for God and to promise myself and my presence and my love to you, which we will finalize on the day of our wedding when I return and we bring this whole thing together. And what Jesus says in, in Matthew 25, in that day when that happens, it'll be like God and humanity coming together as husband and wife and celebrating God's love for us and our love for God in a never-ending wedding feast celebration with singing and dancing and joy and drinking and music and presumably no speeches because then it wouldn't be heaven, it would be the other place. And, but it's going to be this never-ending celebration of the love of God for us and the love of us for God and God, like we said in the first week of the series, is going to recreate his creation and deck it out as this incredible reception wedding hall that is fit to house this eternal celebration of the love of God. In fact, in the very end of the Bible, the third last chapter of the Bible, of the, the a disciple, a guy by the name of John, sees a vision of what that day will be like. And he says this, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder. And people were shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. The kingdom of God has come. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb of Jesus has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready and fine linen, bright and clean, was given for, to her to wear and the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. John says, I saw the day and I heard the shout and the cry and the hallelujah and the celebration 
of God's love being realized for us and our love being celebrated for God among those that God loves who have loved God back. Those, John says, who have made themselves ready will celebrate the love of God for eternity. And the question that hangs over Jesus' sermon in Matthew 25 is what does it mean to be ready to participate in being married for eternity to God, to celebrate the love of God for eternity. Well, this is what Jesus says in verse two. He says, five of the virgins were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. And the bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and they fell asleep. Now the lamps, remember I said the, the, these bridesmaids were going to lead the procession from the bride's house, bride's parents' house to the groom's parents' house. They were going to lead this procession through the dark, holding these torches that would be like heavy sticks with rags you know, wrapped around the end. And they'd be dipped in oil. And that would be the torch that they would carry as they processed and danced and sang their way from the wedding ceremony to the wedding Reception, But the problem with these torches, see, is when you wrap a bunch of rags around a big heavy stick and you dip it in oil and set it on fire, that fire is not going to burn for very long. 15 minutes tops is what experts figure. And so every torch had with it a jar that was filled with oil. Because you know that before long that the fire in this torch is going to begin to die. And so you need a jar filled with oil so that you can continue to put oil on the torch and to keep the flame burning bright. But what Jesus says was there were 10 bridesmaids, but only five of them had thought far enough ahead to be ready to not just have the torch soaked in oil, but to have as well the jar that they were going to use to keep that fire lit. So the other five, whether through forgetfulness or negligence or carelessness, or maybe they thought they didn't need it. He doesn't say why, but five of them didn't bring the oil. And so all the bridesmaids show up with a torch, five with oil and five without. And the, the wedding ceremony is taking longer than anybody anticipated, which they always do. And all the bridesmaids fall asleep. And then it says in verse 6, and at midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. And the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. The, uh, the ceremony ends. The couple is announced. The bridesmaids wake up and they scramble to get their torches ready to make sure the rags are secure and dipped in oil and they set their rags on fire and they got their oil ready to go and they're waiting for the procession to begin and all of a sudden the five foolish virgins begin to realize their torches are going out and they've got no oil to refresh, refresh the flame. Their fire is going to go out and the second their fire goes out, they can no longer participate in the wedding procession. 
And so they say to the others, you got to lend us some of your oil. And the others say, no, we don't have enough. We just brought enough for us. And if we give ours to you, then all of our torches are going to go out before we get to the reception hall. And that's no good. You got to go and buy oil for yourself. And so these bridesmaids, they go in the middle of the night to wake up the shopkeeper and to buy more oil. And Jesus says, tragically, while they were gone, the bridegroom came and he, he and his wife entered into the procession with five bridesmaids instead of ten. And they got to the wedding hall and they all entered in and the doors were closed. You see, in those days, like today, I guess, the bride and groom are the last people to enter the wedding hall. Right? They're the guests of honor. They're the ones being celebrated. And in that culture in which honor was such an important thing, nobody was allowed to upstage the bride and groom by coming into the hall after them. It would be like stealing the show. It would be like stealing someone's thunder, taking the spotlight. It was just not okay. And so after the bride and groom entered, they closed the doors. And that was it. It says in verse 11, later the others came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Of course he knows them. Of course he does. They're bridesmaids. They've been picked by his wife. They're there to support her. They're her friends. They have been asked to play this role. Of course he knows who they are. What he was saying is not, I don't know who you are. What he's, he was dissociating himself from them. What he was saying was, by virtue of the fact that you didn't participate in the processional, you have demonstrated that you're not really a part of us. And so you don't get to be a part of us. And they missed out. And they stayed in the dark and missed the whole thing. They stayed outside because they weren't ready. And I think this is Jesus' point. Is that God has invited each of us to be ready for his return. To have this flame of faith, of passion, of devotion, of love for God and of love for people. This, this passion of discipleship burning in anticipation of his return. To live in the light of the glow of this, of this faith fire that is burning. And what Jesus is warning us of is saying, if you allow that fire to go out, you're going to end up missing out on the whole thing. This is where he ends in verse 13. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Be watchful, be wakeful, be spiritually alert. Keep the fire of that faith burning bright. So that you don't miss out on this eternal celebration of God's love for us and our love for him that we will celebrate for all of eternity. His point is you have to live every moment of every day in a state of Readiness, which I know isn't always possible. All the bridesmaids fall asleep. There are times when we get distracted and, and we get busy and we get pulled aside. I know those things are true. But, but Jesus says you have to live in a state of readiness with a faith fire that is burning bright. See, I think many of us get caught up time to time in exactly the same two things where the foolish bridesmaids got 
pulled aside or got distracted from what they were supposed to be doing. I think there are some of us in our community, at any given moment, there are some of us who are trying to live off a fire from yesterday that's already beginning to die. Right? The bridesmaids, this is what they say to their friends. They say, look, our fire's going out. And they recognize that this is a problem, that the fire that they once had is dying. And that's a problem. And my fear is that there are too many of us in our community, myself included at times, who are content to live off of the glow of the dying fire of yesterday rather than keeping that fire burning brightly today. I've talked to people in our community who have said, well, it doesn't really matter what I do in my life. I prayed a salvation prayer when I was seven, so I'm good. You may have lit a torch when you're seven, but if your fire isn't still burning when you're 47 or 87, that doesn't really count for much. Jesus says the fire has to be burning. I think there are some of us who when we were new to faith, when we discovered the love of Jesus for the first time, the fire burned white hot. We were all passion and zeal and excitement. We carried our Bibles everywhere that we went. We couldn't get enough of the scriptures. We were just reading and rereading and rereading and just learning everything we could about God and Jesus and faith and whatever. We, we would set the alarm every morning and jump out of bed to pray and to spend some time with God. But as that faith life continues sometimes that fire begins to settle and simmer and die and we can settle into kind of a more comfortable more respectable more um, cooler kind of a faith I fear that there are some of us in our community who have been doing this a long time who who face the temptation of slipping into like a spiritual retirement, right? There was a day when you led and there was a day when you served and there was a day when you were really involved and really engaged and, and now the temptation is to think, well, you know what? It's somebody else's turn. I've done the passionate devotion thing. I've done the involvement and engagement thing. I think it's time for the next generation to do their thing and I'm just gonna kind of slip into Retirement, And Jesus says in the story, you, you can't live off your fire from yesterday. How old are your greatest faith memories? Are they from last week or two decades ago? How hot is that fire burning? I think others of us in the community may be tempted by the other thing that the foolish bridesmaids experience. And that is the attempt to try and live off of somebody else's fire. Right? They say to their friends, give us some of your oil. Right? Like, we don't have any oil. We don't have any fire. Our fire's going out. You got to give us some of yours. We need what you got. And the wise bridesmaids very rightly say, our oil doesn't burn your torch. Everybody has to keep their own torch lit. You can't light your torch off of somebody else's fire. Right? Live in the glow of somebody else's faith. I, I think there are people who show up on Sunday mornings. I do this sometimes too, where you show up on Sunday mornings and you just have absolutely no intention of participating in what's going on. 
You're just not at all interested in what's happening. You're here, you showed up, you're surrounded by people who really seem to be into it, and that's good enough for today. You spend the service on your iPhone or writing a to-do list or a grocery list or whatever it is you do to distract your mind until we say, okay, you can go now, and that's it. And you've kind of tried to bask in the glow a little bit of somebody else's fire. Or you go to group, and you're not really that interested in participating at life group. You're not sharing where you're at. You're not being honest about your journey. You're just kind of letting other people talk and and check in a box. I showed up this week. Or um, I think this is really a danger in our church that because we run a homeless shelter, because we serve Rose City kids, because we um, are friends with our you know, migrant friends from the Caribbean and so on, that there are people, because we go to a church that serves the poor, we give ourselves permission to not personally be involved in serving the poor. We're just like, I go to a church that does this, and yet we never actually get involved, even though we're able. And I get there are seasons. I want to be really clear. I know there are seasons. Just like every marriage has seasons. Every marriage isn't burning white hot passion every moment of every day. Like go do taxes together and see how passionate it is. The least sexy thing you can possibly do. The point is not that every moment of every day is just like this burning passion. That's not the deal. The deal is that when you talk to couples that have been married well for 50 years, what they say is we're way more in love today than we were on the day we got married. And that ought to be true of faith as well. That our love for God and for people should be growing every single year. Some of us are living off of yesterday's fire. Some of us are trying to borrow other people's fire. And the question that Jesus wants to ask is, how's your fire? On a scale, you know, Celsius scale of zero freezing to 100 degrees boiling hot, where is your heart at in your love for God? Right? The Bible says that we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, that our love for God is to be the center and the source of everything we are and everything we do. Is your love for God the source of everything you are and everything you do? Or something else at the center of who you are. It says we're to love God with all of our soul. It's the animating energy that gives us life. Is your love for God the animating energy of your life or is it something else that energizes you? It says we're to love God with all of our mind with the way that we think? Are you invested in coming to know and to understand who God is as he revealed himself in Jesus Christ? Are you invested in getting to know the scriptures? Are you invested in understanding God as well as you understand your fantasy football pool or or learning how to cook or whatever your deal is? Are you as invested mentally in learning about God to learn to love God as you are in other things. It says we're to love him with all of our strength, with all of our capacity, with all of our capability. Are you as invested in loving God as you are in some of the other pursuits that you have in your life, hobbies and work and education, whatever? Are you as invested in loving God? as you are in those other things? Are you as invested in studying the scriptures, reading them daily and carefully and and prayerfully to come to know who God is and to what he's inviting you to be? Are you committed to living a life of prayer? Our life is supposed to be an ongoing conversation with God or are you and God not really on speaking terms right now? Which, by the way, we... um, 
on our website under the inspiration portion. We've just put a whole bunch of ideas there to help you get started in engaging with the scriptures and engaging with prayer as a way of building that love for God, of, of pouring oil on the fire of your love for God, of heating that up. Are you, are you accessing the community that you're part of, your friends and mentors and life groups, asking them, help me, what, what can I do to love God more find somebody who radiates a love for God and say show me how to love God as much as you love God are you invested in serving the poor we're going to see in a couple weeks that Jesus says that as much as you love and serve the poor you are loving and serving Jesus that you will encounter Jesus in the faces of the poor and the forgotten and the ignored how hot is the fire of your love for God these days I think the second question Jesus would ask is like it, and it's this, how from zero freezing to, you know, 100, boiling hot, where, how hot is your heart in your love for people these days? And for the, your love for the people that God has put in your life? Are you initiating, instigating relationship with people, especially those that others have forgotten? Or ignored? Are you invested in giving more to your relationships than you are taking from them? Are you being honest with the people in your circle about what's really going on in your life and inviting them into the journey with you? Are you making space just to let people be in your life and to be present to the people who are present to you, to sit and to listen? without giving answers or advice, just to sit and really hear what's going on. And people love them with the gift of listening. Here's a tough one. Jesus says there's two kinds of people in the world. There are neighbors who are meant to be loved and there are enemies who are meant to be loved. How well are you loving your enemies these days? Loving those who hate you. Doing good to those who hurt you. Blessing those who curse you, praying for those who mistreat you. Or ask the question in a different way. If someone were to look into the window of your soul and to watch your relationships, would they see a soul and a relationship filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and all of the things that the Bible says that the Holy Spirit makes real in our relationships with each other when our love for people is burning white hot? Relatedly, how hot is the fire of your love burning for a world that is hurting and in pain right now, that needs to feel the love of Jesus? How much of your time and talents and treasures, how much of your effort and attention and energy are being poured into the poor and the ignored, the forgotten and the marginalized, the oppressed and the abused? How diverse is your relationship circle? How much are you intentionally inviting in the people who've been left out? How much are you engaging in relationship with people who have different beliefs and faith than you? People who come from a different socioeconomic background than you? People who are of a different race than you, or from a different culture than you, or of a different ethnic background? People whose diversity can be a gift to you in the way that it helps you see the world and see people and see Christ differently. 
to love God and people better? How much is the generosity of Jesus, the self-giving love of Jesus flowing through you, that love that is willing to sacrifice anything and everything in order that everybody else might be able to experience the tangible love of God in their lives? How much is that generous, sacrificial, self-giving love of God flowing through you into the lives of a hurting world these days? How hot is the fire of your love for God and your love for people. Because Jesus says that it's the one whose fire is burning hot that are the ones that are going to get to experience the wedding celebration of God's love for us and our love for God for all of eternity. My friend Bruxy Cavey wrote this in his book, Reunion. He says this, wouldn't it be crazy to wake up each morning knowing that you are loved like crazy? What would it be like to move through your day knowing that at every moment the person you loved the most was loving you back, thinking of you, wanting to be with you, desiring to have and to hold you till death and beyond? How would it feel to live in that world and to have that life? We've already talked about the profound truth that God is love. Now let's make this more personal. God loves you. Phrase it however you need to in order to help this truth to sink in. God is crazy about you. God has a crush on you. God can't stop thinking about you. God wants to marry you, to have you as his bride for now and forever. Right now, God is thinking about you, loving you, and wanting your love in return because God loves you like crazy. Will you commit to being ready for the day when we get to celebrate God's love for us and our love for God for all of eternity? Will you commit to being ready for that day by pouring oil on the fire of your white hot love for God and love for everyone that God loves, that God's love might be made real in you and through you because that's what it means to be ready to experience the wedding day that's coming. Let's pray. Father, they say absence makes the heart grow fonder, and yet sometimes, I had a conversation this week where somebody said absence usually generates out of sight, out of mind, and nowhere are we tempted for that more to be true than with you. Please do not allow the fire of our faith, of our passion and devotion, that white hot love for you and for the people you love to flicker and fade for a second in our lives. Would you, by your spirit, give us the fire that we need to continue to pour ourselves passionately into this life that you've invited us into so that when you return, You will find us to be the people burning with the white hot love for you that you with which you have loved us. We want nothing more and nothing else for our life. And we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.